It's a big Shabbos this Shabbos. It's a big Shabbos this Shabbos. Big Shabbos. Big. Grande. Huge. Gadol. Es uno Shabbat muy grande. It's big. This is called Shabbat Zachor, Shabbat of Remembering. It's one of the four unique Shabbatot, or Sabbaths, that are leading up to Passover. We've already had one, Shabbat Shkalim, two weeks ago, and we have two more coming. Shabbat Zachor has its name for the, the reading that will take place tomorrow, the special reading of Zachor, Asher Asadacha Amalek, Baderech, Betzeitchemi Mitzrayim, Asher Korcha Baderech, Remember what the nation of Amalek did to you as you left Egypt. This remembrance is a mitzvah de oraita, it's a mitzvah from the Torah. Its fulfillment is obligatory on all of us to hear the words, This always is the Shabbat before Purim. Purim, of course, in its story, is a story, whether created, whether an artifact, or whether it truly happened. Either way, it's a story of Amalek. It's a story of the relationship between the Jewish nation and a descendant of that nation, Amalek. It's also, of course, Purim, this Shabbat, tomorrow night. And so, a topic that is on my heart and mind is, of course, clothing. Not only because one of the distinguishing features of Purim is that we dress up in all manner of, of disguise, all manner of costume, but it just so happens to be that this Shabbat also, as is usually the case, the Parshada Shavua, the reading for this week, has to do with clothing as well, but we need to go further back. We need to go, need to, go to a time when clothing was first introduced in the Torah, we're told in the Torah that before Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, before in that myth they transgressed the will of God, they were naked and they didn't feel embarrassment. There was no embarrassment at all. There was no shame. There was no shame. They could be naked, and there was no sense of boundary between self and other. There was no sense of observer. That had not yet arisen within them. But once they had eaten from that tree, immediately they felt afraid and recognized that they were naked. God asked them, as you recall in the story, have you eaten from that tree I told you not to eat from? And they said, yes. And so God made for them, the Torah says, kudnot or. Garments of ore, which is skin. And on this, the Midrash, Frech de Kashia, the, the Midrash has a problem. What's the problem? Skin presumes, from an animal at least, that the animal is dead. But death hasn't entered the world yet. So where did God, quote-unquote, get these skins from? Amar Rabbi Lazer, Rabbi Lazer said, of the skin that the serpent sloughed off, God made coats of glory. Coats of glory. Kavod. For Adam and his helpmate, as it is said, and God made for Adam and his wife coats of skin, and he clothed them. 
Aviva Zornberg, commenting on this, says something very beautiful. She says, The serpent skin, brilliant and disposable, comes to represent re representation itself. The paradox is striking. The serpent, all deception, representation, plausible language, verbal display, is reconstructed into an attribute of human dignity. The skin of that which deceived them, the skin of deception itself, becomes the glory of covering. It isn't the first time this paradox appears. It is embedded, as I've said before, in the very word in Hebrew for clothing, beged. The second, third, and fourth letters of the Hebrew alphabet spell the word beged, which means garment, and also spell, with a different vowel pronunciation, boged, which means to betray. That clothing and the, the cultural artifact that is clothing brings us into a relationship of authenticity and inauthenticity, of deception and honesty of glory and its opposite. We find for the rest of the book of Genesis that every place that clothing arrives, whether it's in the story of Esau and his brother Jacob where clothing acts as deceptive to steal something, whether it's the clothing that Tamar wears as she covers her face to deceive Judah into sleeping with her, whether it's the clothing of Joseph who as the viceroy of Egypt also wears clothing to deceive his brothers who don't recognize him. Clothing in the book of Genesis is deception. It might promise glory, but delivers deception. And then we arrive at this week's Torah reading. At this, in this week's Torah reading, we are introduced to Bigdei Kuhuna, the garments of the, of the priest, the priest who was the one who served in the sanctuary, the priest was given clothing, and we have an entire parsha devoted to describing those clothes. And the Torah calls them bigadim, clothing, that are given lechavod ulitif aret, that are given for honor, chavod and beauty, tif aret. The priest is to wear the clothing with kavod. I want to contrast that priestly model with something from Leonard Cohen in a book that he wrote in 1963 called The Favorite Game. In it, he describes what is clearly an autobiographical character who has gone to temple with his father and uncles. He had thought, writes Cohen, that his tall uncles in their dark clothes were princes of an elite brotherhood. He had thought the synagogue was their house of purification. He had thought their business and their businesses were realms of feudal benevolence. But he had grown to understand that none of them even pretended to, to those things. They were proud of their financial and communal success. They liked to be first, to be respected, to sit close to the altar, to be called up, to lift the scrolls. They weren't pledged to any other idea. They didn't believe that their blood was consecrated. 
when he saw the rabbi and the cantor move in their white robes, the light on the brocaded letter of their prayer shawls, when he stood among his uncles and bowed with them and joined his voice to theirs in responses, when he followed in the prayer book the catalog of magnificence, of magnificence. No, says Cohen, his uncles were not grave enough. They were strict, but not grave. They didn't seem to realize how fragile the ceremony was they participated in it blindly as if it would last forever. They didn't seem to realize how important they were. They were ignorant of the craft of devotion. They were strict but not grave. They wore the clothes on the outside, dressing for all of those who had gathered the garments they wore acted as masks to hide behind, not to delve deeply into the place that Cohen later says is the place where everything, all of it, can be annihilated. The fragility of life. They weren't able to touch the sanctity of the craft of devotion because their clothes and their externals, all of that was strict but not grave. The priest this weekend is given garments to wear. Lechavod, the word for heaviness. In Hebrew, kvedut, for gravity, for gravitas, for being grave, for recognizing the fragility of the ceremony, the absolute importance of the universe that manifests in the moment-to-moment -moment that is unplanned. So we have this paradigm of the priest. And once a year, each and every one of us is a priest. And you would imagine that having gone this far in the last 10 minutes, clothing is wonderful. If it's done, lechavod, for the sense of gravity, for the sense of life. Yom Kippur. Kind of a clothing kind of day. Yom Kippur, the day in which the priest would wear clothing over and over again. And even though a priest who wears clothing with gravity, even though someone who sees through those veils is considered holy, we have an enigmatic statement from the rabbis about Yom Kippur. We all go around thinking Yom Kippur is the highest day of the year. It's the holiest. The Tukune Zohar says, no. Holier than Yom Kippur is Purim. We weren't selling tickets. Because you have to know to know. Says the Tukune Zohar, Yom Kippur is Yom Kippurim. Yom Kippur is a day like Purim. It doesn't touch Purim. It's close, but not quite. But wait a second, everybody. We just said that clothing is beautiful if it's not deceptive. If I wear my clothing for gravity, if I'm not Leonard Cohen's hypocrites. If I'm the priest on the highest day of the year wearing all of my garments, my eight garments, I divest myself of one and then I put another one on, what does Purim have that Yom Kippur doesn't have? Purim. Purim is the day. Purim is the day. That if Yom Kippur is the day where I dress for God, 
Purim is the day where I dress for me. Purim is that game, that amazing moment where I can play through the veils, all veils, all garments. I can play act, taking one off and putting another one on. I can imagine myself rehearsing to improve, rehearsing my life to arrive at a place where I have changed, where I have transformed. Purim is that day that in mythology, I'd like to read to you a myth that is brought by Mark Nepo, if I can find it. A myth that has at its core transformation. He writes, Breaking our cycles is an archetypal passage that everyone who ever lived has had to face. Consider the Viking myth, he writes, of Kalevala. Here we find a woman who is under the spell of a wizard, and for 900 years she is bejeweled constantly and dresses solely to please him. And one day, as he bids her to put on yet one more thing to please him, she begins to undress, breaking the spell. Soon she stands before him naked, saying, This time not for you, but for me. And as she turns away, free for the first time in almost a thousand years, she becomes a salmon, and shimmering swims upstream into her destiny. When do we stop dressing for others is the question that Purim mockingly asks Yom Kippur. When do you stop dressing for others, even if that other is God? When do we have the courage, says Purim, to take off the mask that we normally wear and try something else on? When do we have the courage to be that naked, to be that vulnerable, to be that open, to imagine and entertain those possibilities? So it's true, Yom Kippur is strict. Yom Kippur is holy. But on Yom Kippur, we don't dress for ourselves, we dress for God. And in that moment, the fragility of life is kept at a bit of a distance. We can imagine that we're doing transformative work. We can imagine that we've made promises and that we're going to keep them. But Purim asks us to go one step further. Purim asks us to unknow what we think we know. To unknow the garments that we put on so quickly in the morning and in the evening. The trips that we play with our friends. The games that we play all the time. And ask us to step out. Purim is a deeper, deeper Torah than Yom Kippur. And it's harder to do Purim right than it is to do Yom Kippur right. It's harder to do Purim right, to live with a Purim ethos. How many people can say honestly that they have brought the kind of laughter and the kind of playfulness into the roles they play in life with the kind of obligation that Purim demands? So we can go home and make all kinds of lists. 
But Leonard Cohen would say, you're still strict. You're not kavod, you're not grave. You're not in that place of gravitas, of touching life and letting it touch you. So I want to bless you and I hope you bless me back. For most people, the fourth of the four mitzvot obligations that take place on Purim is not hard to fulfill. To drink a little bit until you don't know the difference between one thing and another. That's one of those religious obligations that, you know, you don't have to twist people's arms. But Purim is an invitation. Like all of the sacred moments in our calendar, it's an invitation to reflect and to live. And Purim's question is, as it was then and will be always, how fragile can you be? Which mask can you take off? And bless you all that you have the strength to ask that question. And more importantly, that we all have the strength to answer it with honesty. Amen. Please rise.